Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Ian Joy, who's everywhere these days on CBS Sports HQ and the Yes Network. We've had some great guests lately, including Shannon McCarthy, Shep Messing, and Crystal Dunn. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. All eight episodes are out, and you can binge all of them to your heart's content. Now, here's my interview with Ian Joy. Our guest now is one of the hardest working people in soccer media. My friend Ian Joy can be seen on CBS Sports HQ, the Yes Network broadcasts of NYCFC, and hosting a new show on Yes called Joy to the World. Ian had a 13-year pro playing career that included time in MLS and for five years in Hamburg, Germany with Hamburg and St. Pauli. Ian, congratulations on all the things you're doing, and thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. It's great to see you first and foremost. Obviously proud of you and uh, Celine, what you guys are doing and uh, raising awareness. I'm really proud of you and your next step in your own journey. And it's my honor to be here with you and get a chance to talk with you. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about because you're doing a lot of things. Um, You've had a pretty amazing journey both as a player and now in media in recent years. And I'm just curious, how are you able to do all the things you're doing right now? Oh my word, what a great place to start. Wow. Um, It's very difficult to be able to put into words how I feel doing this journey right now in my life. You know, it's almost as if I'm living two different lives and two different dreams because Being a professional soccer player was a dream as a kid and playing for 14 years was pretty awesome. It was a great experience. I mean, you can't put into words what it's like to play in front of 20, 30,000 or to score a goal. Like not many people get the opportunity to do that. And then I have this next career, which has uh, really blown up pretty quickly for me that seemed to me like it was a passion from when I was a very young boy and I'm enjoying the journey of media more than I enjoyed the journey of playing professional soccer, which I don't think many people would say, but this has been just wild, Grant. And you know, we've worked together. It's been, it's been an awesome journey. I've learned a lot from so many great people around me. And this journey into media has been something that has caught me by surprise how quickly it's taken off. But at the same time, it's hard work. It's a lot of work to get through. And uh, you know more than anyone working as hard as you do that you got to be prepared and ready to rock and roll. And if you don't prepare properly, um, you could get caught out. And I've learned a lot from the mistakes of others in the past to know that I got to be on my game. Otherwise, you don't last in this game for long. Yeah. Um, Before we get into sort of the journey itself, I want to ask you about your new show, Joy to the World. This is clearly beyond the soccer realm. How did this come about? What's the what is the show doing? Well, it's it's been a real pleasure, first and foremost, to see the reaction from the show um, going out on Yes Network and, and, and the East Coast in particular around the New York area. Um, it was something we had planned for maybe two years now. Yes. You know, we had been talking about me moving or relocating over to the East Coast away from the West Coast where I was based working with Fox and covering the Bundesliga. You know, I had a house in L.A. and then my kids were in school and trying to 
figure out how I was going to make this move over to the East Coast wasn't easy for me. And of course, Yes Network, we're going through a transition of ownership and um, it took some time. But making the move over during the pandemic, then getting over here um, and settling in Connecticut where I am now, the kids are in school, uh, wife is happy, even though it's cold weather. And then seeing the show come to fruition, actually seeing the idea we've had for a couple of years of me being here hosting my own show, it's just been a dream come true. And I'll tell you this, the DS Network is, is just a bunch of great people, talented individuals from executives all the way down to talent to beyond, producers, directors, whatever it may be, just immense family atmosphere. And it's where I wanted to be, Grant. And when I got the opportunity a couple of years ago to have that in the back of my mind that this could be a reality, I didn't quite believe it to be true until I stood in front of that camera only last month and made that first show happen. And it's been unusual because the idea for the show is to be out and about in New York, mixing with people, great people, learning from people, sharing stories. And the show is called Joy to the World for a reason. We want to bring happiness to people. We want to give people some energy, a boost to their day. And the response so far has been really electrifying, but we're only just getting started. We're still stuck inside a studio. We're still stuck doing Zoom calls. We're still stuck doing interviews away from people. So just you wait until we can actually get face-to-face with people and really tell stories about what New York is all about. And it's not just about sports. We want to talk about entertainment and, of course, uh, food and restaurants and, of course, theater. Like, I'm interested and obsessed with New York and its people. And that's the story we want to tell. So it's been a great beginning, but there's a big journey ahead of us. When can people watch your show? So we don't have a regular schedule, which is interesting because, you know, as you know, the Yes Network is a huge Yankees network. And uh, whenever the Yankees are performing or going through spring training or playing a live game, you know, it takes preference over anything else. NYCFC, the Nets are doing so well. They're creating such a buzz. So there's a lot of shows and a lot of content that we're putting together right now that is um, massive to, to our network. And my show is something that's sort of filling in the gaps in between. Got it. So there's not a particular schedule that we have right now, but it will get a lot more prioritized as we get further down the road. And we have a regular schedule of when sports are taking place and when teams know exactly when they're playing, we'll be able to say every Thursday you can catch the show here. But at the moment we've done two in March, we've got one set for, um, sorry, two in February, one in March, we'll do a couple in April, and then hopefully we'll start to do maybe three a month from then on out. And it'll become more regular, but watch out, check listings on Yes Network, you can find it. Nice. Um, so your media rise has been pretty meteoric is, is the word I would use. You've gone from being sports in Miami to Fox Sports in LA to all the things you're doing now in New York. And you're not just an analyst like so many ex-players. You're also a host, kind of like our Gary Lineker in a way. How did you acquire those hosting skills? Because that's not the easiest thing to do. No, it's not. And, and in many ways, it's the hardest job to do. You know, leading or leading a segment, as you know, is very difficult. I mean, you have to be prepared properly and you have to work with the right people. Um, and sometimes you have to challenge yourself. 
And that's where I wanted to put myself. I wanted to take myself out of a comfort zone and get that adrenaline rush again going in my body, which I missed from soccer, but got when I started working in media and then wanted again in media doing a separate role. And it was actually at being sports. I was working with uh, Terry Badu quite closely, who obviously is a famous host from CNN. Mm-hmm. I'd watched him all the way through my childhood. Um, and he was great to work with at being sports. And then the 2014 World Cup came around and the idea of um, doing a show from Rio de Janeiro on the Copacabana, where they had this awesome studio came up and Terry Badu came to me and said, I've put your name forward to host this show. (laughs) And I'm thinking, wow, first and foremost, thanks for doing that. It was in the back of my mind that I could host the show. And mm. I didn't know if it would be prompter, if it would be, you know, ablibbing, if I could just say what I wanted to. I had no idea what it was going to be like. And when I got to Rio, it was incredible. It was an amazing experience. Um, the studio set on Rio de Janeiro was outstanding. It was a dream come true. And when I get pushed into a, a position where I'm out of my comfort zone, you either shine or you die, you fail. And I chose to shine because I feel like this is what I was born to do. I was born to be um, in front of the camera. And I don't consider myself a host. I would consider myself an entertainer. And I've said Hmm. that to many of my bosses. You know, I'm here to entertain. I'm here to bring some energy. I'm here to, to obviously have guests and be able to communicate them with you and bring you great content, which is most important to me, making sure that great content's out there. Um, so that show was just incredible. I mean, the guest that being sport put in there was just, I mean, it was immense. I had Rude Hulett and Christian Vieri as my guests pretty much regularly. And my show didn't go air until 11 p.m. at night. And they would be out all day meeting mm-hmm. their friends on the beach, playing foot volley. I mean, God knows what they were up to. But by the time they came into the studio, they were just gone. They'd been drinking and having a great time. So as you can imagine, it was like a locker room feel. When they came in, they were buzzing. They were telling stories. Vieri was putting his tie on his head. Rudulet was just cussing. I mean, it was just wild. And all their buddies came into the studio because they wanted to hang out. So the show was a success. And... I got such a great buzz from that. And um, I knew that this was something that maybe I could pursue going forward. That wasn't necessarily like I mentioned, just being a host. It was more about, you know, being someone who's in a lead position to entertain. And, you know, obviously when Fox came around, I was never getting into Fox sports as an analyst. It simply didn't have the career. I didn't have the name to be able to come in as an analyst and say, you know, you know, here's he enjoy. You know, there wasn't much success for that. Um, so John T. Whitehead brought me in to Fox as a host for the Bundesliga. And this is before Kate Apto got to the network. And it was just brilliant. I never read a prompter. And huh. I've got Winalda, Jovan Karofsky, Thomas Hitzelsberger, Brad Friedel, Alexi Lalas, and all these great former heroes of mine sitting next to me. And uh, we made it work and I managed to, to read a prompter and be able to make a success of it and learn and develop. And um, I'm forever grateful for those who gave me that opportunity because since then, um, I've really grabbed the opportunity and run with it. So you were born in California, in San Diego, but you moved to Scotland, I was reading, when you were three, grew up over there but you played for U.S. youth national teams. And, and I remember seeing pictures of you with Kyle Martino from those days. 
Um, what was that experience like for you back then as you were starting your career? It was always a dream of mine to, to represent USA. When I was young growing up, my mom and my dad, mom Scottish, dad English, both let it be known you should be proud of where you come from. You were born in the USA. They're proud of their time spent over in California. My father played soccer back in the day, in the NSL days. And uh, my mom loved her time here. So I always had a US flag or, you know, USA shirt. So something that said USA to be proud of and, and make it, you know, something that's within my life and a big part of my life. So as you're growing up and you're starting to make a success of a youth soccer career, the Scottish national team or schoolboy system was, was a target. It was a goal for everyone. And I remember going through the Scottish youth system. I was 14 at the time. We were looking to try and get into the schoolboys under 15s, which was a big level. This was the main level. If you made schoolboy level, you had a real chance of becoming a pro. So it was a target of mine. And um, I remember going to the tryouts and making it all the way to the finals for the tryouts. And they played me for three minutes, even though mm-hmm. I had played wonderfully. And I knew I had a real chance of making the team, but it just became political. And a lot of the Glasgow Rangers and Glasgow Celtic boys took preference over me, who had already committed to going to Tranmere Rovers. It wasn't a big enough name. Even though I was at Man United as a schoolboy, I chose mm-hmm. to go to Tranmere Rovers because there was no chance of getting into Man United's first team. And because it wasn't a big name and I hadn't committed, I felt like politically they pushed me out. And I thought, okay, fair enough. And it wasn't too long after that that I got the opportunity to to get the call up for the US uh, under-17 team, which was run by Jay Miller at the time. I think it was Jay Miller. Okay. And they played in Germany. And I was 14 at the time. I was still in high school. And they called me to come over to Germany, play a couple of games against Dortmund and a few other teams. And um, that was a tremendous experience. And it gave me a buzz to say, this is where my future is. And then, of course... I was 14 still in high school. The Daily Record, the biggest newspaper in Scotland, wrote, Joy turns his back on Scotland, which was just like, oh, my (laughs) word. Scotland turned its back on Joy. Um, But in school, I got a lot of criticism for that in my final year. But I was proud of the decision to go and play for the national team. And what a team grant we had. Like I was captain of the U18s. And um, Mitch Murray was uh, the head coach and Tim Schultz was the assistant coach who's just an unbelievable guy who everybody knows from Rush Youth Soccer. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, Cal Martino, Edson Buttle, Connor Casey, uh, Brian Carroll, I mean, Doug Warren. I mean, we had so many talented players come through. Brad Davis, like, it was just immense. And the battle was on between that U18 team that was mine and the U17 team, which was getting all the headlines mm. of Gucci and Beckerman and the big names. And they were a fabulous team. But whenever we played together, it was a real battle. And eventually, you know, that united to become the under-20s and it, it failed. You know, they never made the, they never got past Mexico and it was a big story. But what a group of players those were. And I was lucky to be a part of it. Nice. I always associate you with the city of Hamburg, where you played for Hamburg and St. Pauli. I love that city. I spent a month there during the 06 World Cup because that's where the U.S. team was based. I especially love the ethos of the club, FC St. Pauli. I know you do, too. Could you explain to our listeners why and give us a sense of your experience there? Yeah, if nobody knows about FC St. Pauli, 
then I don't know where you've been or what you're doing because <laughs> they make names for, they've made a name for themselves for unsoccer related reasons, right? It was incredible. So I moved over to Hamburg. Um, I had no club for six months before I went to Hamburg. And then all of a sudden I got this opportunity to play for Hamburg and I played for their amateur side, which is the U23 side and trained with the first team and learned a lot. And, but I just knew that at that point they were in a champions league. I was never at that level and I needed a drop down to play regular first team football. And St. Pauli was the obvious choice. It was the only team I wanted to go to. So to, to make a long story short, when I was playing for Hamburg, I would quietly go in disguise on a Friday night to the Millen tour to watch St. Pauli and support St. Pauli. Not many people would <laughs> know that. And it was only because at first when I arrived in Hamburg, I actually went to St. Pauli first and I did a tryout there. Corey Gibbs was in that team at the time and they had dropped from Bundesliga to the second to the third. They were playing Regionalliga and there were still 20,000 people at the stadium. So my first game was just, a, it was a rock show, but the soccer was dreadful. It was terrible. And they had no success. There was no quality in the team. There was no confidence. And they had made a decision to, to leave me for a month and then do some testing. And, and, you know, I have that winter break, do some testing and come back. And at that month, I said, okay, I'm going to go over to Hamburg and, and, you know, test out there and see how that happens. Within three days, Thomas Dole, who was the coach there, signed me and said, you ain't going back to St. Pauli. So it was initially a love for St. Pauli that kept me in Germany. But I maintained that love even when I was playing for Hamburg, which was just crazy. Um, but when I got the opportunity to go back to St. Pauli, I grabbed it with both hands, playing in front of 20,000 fans who use soccer as a place to demonstrate their political beliefs. And it's an extreme liberal club, um, left-wing club that, you know, they fight against all kinds of discrimination and they're not frightened to show that at a soccer game. So against racism, fascism, homophobia, sexism, um, refugees welcome. I mean, it was just an open, fr friendly family club that everyone was welcome unless you were a right-wing political fan. And it was amazing to me. And I couldn't believe it. So before I even got a chance to pull on the jersey, and most Americans who play for the club will tell you this, Grant, that they take you on a tour around St. Pauli, which is uh, the Ripapan Keats district of Hamburg. And you've been there, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, this is the red light district of Hamburg. It's on the harbor. It's a punk rock basis where you have anything you want is there. I mean, pubs, clubs, girls, it had everything, all legal. And you could smoke and drink and do whatever you want on the street, all legal. And I couldn't believe it, but I fell in love with it. And it wasn't that I wanted to do it, but it was the fact that there was a freedom for people, that there was a support for people who needed it, homeless. There was a support for homeless people. There was um, you know, a, a complete fight against racism at that time. And a lot of my friends are black. So it was like important to me to play a role in that and show support. So St. Pauli just became a part of me and still is to this day. Um, you know, I, I bear the tattoos on my body. Uh, for a reason. It's, it becomes more than soccer. It became um, a real passion and religion for me. And uh, to be able to be at St. Pauli and play for that football club is a real honor. But at the time I was there, 
man, we were successful. We had a team full of guys who all thought the same as me. We were not the most talented individually, but as a team collectively, we were just unstoppable. And at that point, 2005, all the way through to 2008, the three and a half years or three years I spent there, we we were in a lot of trouble financially. The club was was really in trouble, about to run out of business. And, and a great story to tell you how bad it was. We would go out to do the warm up, and there would be one floodlight on. And we'd be, you know, I would be like, hey, what? You know, telling the groundsman, like, put the lights on. We can't see what we're doing here. And he's like, we had to wait for the ticket sales to come in to get the money to pay the electric bill to put the lights on elsewhere. And I was just like, I love the club even more because of that. I just thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> so we had success and we managed to go on an amazing cup run. We went to the semifinal uh, where we got knocked out by Bayern Munich, but that brought in a much needed funds. And then we got promoted a year later to the second Bundesliga and that brought in even more funds and financially it saved the club. And mm. the people who were in charge of the club used the money wisely to build the club, to build um, the image of the club and be- make it more popular. They built the stadium and they've made it now not a business. I wouldn't like to call it a business, but they've made it very, very popular around the world where it has become successful. It's not just about luxury. It's about quality and quality of life and making sure that they use soccer, their name, their brand to help people and forever I'll be a part of that. Let's take a quick break from our interview with Ian Joy and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga or Copa Libertadores and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Copa Libertadores, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports and English and Spanish, Gold TV, and many more, and it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. It's really cool. I would encourage anyone, once we can travel again, post-pandemic, to, to go to Hamburg, see some games. The, during the 06 World Cup, I actually stayed at one of these hipster hotels, kind of on the edge of the, the Reeperbahn area, but also close to uh, where St. Pauli was, you know, within walking distance. And just a lot of good memories there. Um, you ended up coming to MLS. You played in MLS for Salt Lake, for Portland Timbers. Um, what was that experience like to actually come and, and live in the United States and, and play in MLS? I always wanted to play in MLS. It was, it was a dream to come back to the States and play. I'd been a part of the national team through 17s, 18s, 20s, and obviously was trying to get a name for myself in MLS. Most people don't know this, but I actually came... Oh, I can't remember what year it was, but I came to Columbus Crew 
uh, when Greg Andrulis was the manager and I played a couple of games um, down in Miami and we went to Portugal on a training camp and they wanted to draft me. Um, I'm not sure if it was supplemental draft or how it was working, but I failed my medical on, on my knee. I damaged my knee in my first pro game at Tramir Rovers and um, my PCL was very weak and it was an injury that wasn't common at that time. And I, I was just not passing a medical and I was fearful going mm. in that I was going to fail, but I failed and MLS just shut it down. And then I was just fighting for scraps to try and get an opportunity to come back to MLS, but it didn't work out. And uh, Columbus made the right decision. They, they obviously were, were smart in protecting their team. Um, but at that point, Kyle Martino was on that team, Edson Butter was on that team, and I, I, I wanted to be a part of that, but it just wasn't meant to be. So I went back and focused on getting healthy and making sure I could pass a medical and then start my career again. That's where Germany came into play. And then for some reason, I was going through, uh, you know, some, some tough times in Germany. You know, we'd had success on, on the field and it was amazing. The money was starting to come in financially for me. I was starting to build a foundation and um, my personal life was, was in tatters. I was married at that time. I just had a baby. And um, I could tell my relationship wasn't going to last. And I was trying to keep the family together. So I had actually, it was me personally, not my agent did not agree with this decision. I had actually reached out to some MLS teams and Garth was the first one to respond, Garth Lagerwey. And uh, he's, you know, at that point, I, you know, I didn't know much about RSL other than they were terrible. They were not a good team. They were trying to build something, but they had no success whatsoever but they had changed their philosophy. They had Garth Lagerwey and Jason Christ now in charge of the club and they were trying to bring in the right people. And uh, they made, they, they just got lucky at that time that I was very vulnerable. And uh, Garth came over, watched a game. We did a contract pretty quickly. Um, and after the contract, he said to me, I'll never forget this, Grant. We were in a bar, like we had already had five or six beers at this point. And he had said to me, why on earth are you leaving this? Like he had played in, in Germany for a small period of time with mm -hmm. Freiburg and stuff. So he knew about it, but he loved St. Pauli. And he was mm -hmm. like, why would you want to leave this? And I was like, I have to, I have to. I was trying to keep the family together. I wasn't in the right mental state. And then I went to tell the coach at Christmas on our winter break, I was like, I've got an offer and I think I have to take it. And he said, no, you're not leaving. And he offered me a new contract. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it was really hard. And it makes me emotional now. Think about it. I don't talk about this stuff, Grant. Nobody knows about it. Um, but he had uh, offered me a massive contract and, and begged me to stay. And I, I just said, I need to go. Um, and I was trying to keep the family together. But I also had this dream of the USA and MLS and trying to maybe at some point get back into the national team uh, picture. And um, yeah, I thought MLS would be the best way to do that. But at that point, I had made some big mistakes. So hmm. I had canceled my contract at St. Pauli. They allowed me to go on a free transfer and RSL picked me up. And um, yeah, it was a good time for RSL. It was, it was a good time to get me in there because I was hungry for success. But personally, my life was just in tatters at that point. Uh, I mean, you know, I've talked a little bit in the past about the mental health perspective of what you were experiencing when you came over to, to MLS. Are you okay sharing any of that? Absolutely. Whatever I can do to help. And, you know, it's important that people recognize this. You know, I said to you when we communicated about doing this, as long as we can talk about mental health, 
I'm all yours. And it's important to me to talk about it and be open about it. So how did things go when you came to, to the U.S.? What did you experience as you were facing these challenges in your personal life? I was really excited. Jason made me feel very welcome. Garth made me feel very welcome. And I could see with the people who they were bringing into the club that they were trying to make a success of it. And I really fell in love with Utah. I fell in love with Salt Lake City. So it was an easy transition for me uh, personally to find a place. And at that point, I was planning on bringing the family over. Um, and then certain things happened in my personal life um, that made me realize this is not the right decision. So after signing a four-year contract with RSL, um, I had brought my then wife and daughter over to Utah. I'd got a nice big house for everybody to be settled. And all of a sudden, it wasn't going to work out. And she decided to leave and uh, go back to Europe. And I thought it was the best decision as well. So we separated and she took my daughter and um, it was difficult. I'll tell you this, success for preseason was immense. Um, great people. We had immediately hit chemistry. Jason was phenomenal. I could see he was special. And I, he knew he had a, a drive in me and a leadership in me to be successful and help build this locker room culture and help build this team. Unfortunately for RSL, they got me at the wrong time mentally, but they got some joy from that because I did help push them. Um, but once my um, marriage was over, um, a, a, another story, I, I think maybe I've mentioned this before somewhere, but my wife and child flew back to Europe at that time. I was flying to Dallas on the same day. So I, I went to the airport, said goodbye, flew to Dallas for a game and I was gone. I was just in tears, uh, just like everyone was supportive for the team, but I was just mentally not there. And Jason, I'll never forget this. Jason pulled me the day before the game and he said, are you going to be okay to play? And I said, I need this. I need this. I need to play because it's my safe ground. Whenever I'm in the white lines, I hear that whistle go. I'm in my place. And nobody can touch me. My life can't be um, in tatters. It can't, can't have an effect from what I do in between these white lines. Or so I thought. Mm. I lasted 38 minutes against FC Dallas. I got sent off in that game. <laughs> and wow. It was not good. It was not good. I went back to the locker room. Um, I tore up the locker room and uh, smashed the place up. And then was just in the shower when the guys came in because... 10 minutes later, they came in for half, half time. And, you know, later I found out from Kevin Hardo, who was the equipment manager at the time, um, he had he'd asked, like Jason had asked him, you know, who, who, did, who did this? You know, and he said, is Ian? And Jason went, good, good. You know, and I had a conversation after with Jason where he just allowed me to be away from the team to just get myself together. And uh, it was not great. And it was a long time of, um, of hurt, of pain, it needed to happen in my personal life. That relationship wasn't working. And I was trying my best. I gave up the Bundesliga for it uh, to keep my marriage together. And it was a mistake, but it led me to be in Utah surrounded by these great people who were supportive of me. And I met my now wife, Nicole, um, only six weeks after I had separated. So mm. I immediately went from this downer where I'd been sent away from the team to clear my head, 
to have this massive up of meeting this young, beautiful girl from Utah. And she just changed my life forever. But at that point, she changed my life immediately. And then the team started to get success again. And I was like, they're getting the best of me. I started to play, but I kept on having injuries and I kept on having setbacks where, you know, I would play for five games. Then I would get a hamstring tear. I mean, I think I tore my hamstring four times in the space of 18 months while I was at RSL. And then, you know, this is a long story and I hope it doesn't bore your listeners, but at the end of that year, we achieved the playoffs for the first time in club history, which was amazing. Euro Mavsissian scored a goal in Colorado. We celebrated like we were kings. It was just brilliant. And then in the playoffs, we did well. We had success. But the fact that we achieved that Dave Chekets was happy and um, Jason Christ was incredibly happy. And I thought, great, I'm looking forward to next year. But my child was still in Europe and there was a piece of me that missed her immensely and so much that it was inevitable I was going to have this downer. So I went back to Fortuna Dusseldorf and mm. I asked permission to go train with them. They had um, asked me to come in and go to Turkey with them on preseason. And I'd been out, you know, that time MLS, you had like three months off, you know? So I had six weeks off, seven weeks off, went to preseason where they were having their winter break at Fortuna. They were in the third division at the time. And uh, again, fabulous city, great culture, 20,000, 30,000 fans in the stadium. It's immense. And uh, I went to, to train with them and I loved it. It was great, but my head just wasn't there. I just, I couldn't convince myself to, I didn't know what I wanted, Grant. And mm. I left through the night of the training camp and put a note underneath um, the head coach Myers door and said, thank you. Um, but I'm really sorry. I'm not prepared for this. And they had already sold their left back to bring me in. And we had agreed on terms. And he never spoke to me again after that. Um, mm. But I went back to, to Utah. And I was like determined to make this a success because I knew RSL was onto something special in 2009, which of course they, they, they clearly were. And I went through preseason. I committed to Garth and Jason and said, you have my 100% focus. And they did. And I played amazing through preseason. Got to the last preseason friendly game and I tore my hamstring. Mm. And that was the end of me. After that, I mentally went into a depression. I couldn't do rehab again. I started to smoke. I was drinking. And I I'm not frightened to admit this. I was having really bad suicidal thoughts. I wasn't enjoying life. I was away from my daughter. I had gone through this up with my uh, girlfriend at the time, Nicole, and then down with her. And fortunately, she stuck by me through all that and was an amazing help. Um, I had Clint Mathis as my uh, roommate at the time. He was the apartment off opposite me. So whenever I'd go out for, I'd smoke these little cigars, you know, I was like, what am I doing? And he'd be out there smoking on the other balcony, you know, <laughs> he'd be like, hey, hey. But those, those moments kept me sane, but it was really a bad time. And, uh, and when I thought I couldn't get any worse, it got worse. It got worse. I was cheating death. Uh, I, I would do stupid things, Grant. Like um, I've wrote about this before, um, but having depression is something really difficult to deal with. But when you don't know what it is and you're trying to figure out why you're in this mental state, you do some, make some mistakes. And um, I wasn't being a good pro at that time. I um, 
was walking in front of trains that were coming at me a hundred mile an hour. I had a train track right next to where I was living. And often at times I would just think about it and I would play, you know, a game with this train that's coming towards me. I'd stand and wait as long as I could until I just slowly walk past this train and it would go past me. And I did it so many times. Um, I knew something wasn't right and I needed help. It came to an end at RSL when one game I'd managed to get myself healthy and I came on against Toronto and played 10 minutes and it was great feeling to be back. But the next game, Jason put me on the bench and the team was losing against, I think it was the Red Bulls. And Jason looked over to me like, you know, and I'm, and for some stupid reason, I was rude towards him and I'd, you know, I'd cussed at him on the sideline and he marched straight up to me and was like in no uncertain terms, letting me know he was the boss and don't you ever embarrass me in my stadium and all this sort of stuff. And I was just gone, Grant. My head was gone. Um, we got into the locker room and Jason made the mistake of asking, do you want to settle this now or should we settle it later? And I said, right now. So I went into his office and we, we came face to face. And you must remember, this is a guy who I respect immensely. And this is a guy who I have so much respect for as a coach, but as a human being, what a great person. But my head was gone and I wasn't there. And, you know, we, we, we just we had to be separated from Jason mm. at that time. And I knew my time was up. I knew mm. I had to leave and I had to go to rehab and get myself sorted out. So I left. And uh, thankfully, they were respectful of me, Jason and Garth, and they knew I wasn't right. And they had asked me to, to, you know, try to support me in any way to get help. I went back to Germany and I signed a small contract for um, play as you pay as you play for Ingolstadt in the third division. And I was seeing therapist in Munich and it was great. It was amazing. But I was my lowest, lowest, lowest point. And from then on, I managed to turn my life around and start to get better. Thank you for sharing that. I know um, it's not the first time you have, but it, it's still a, a story that uh, is your story and is very personal. And I think for listeners, it, it can help to know that you can get through it. And and you did, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I'm still going through it. You know, I, I don't think you ever get rid of um, mental health issues. I think everybody in one way or another has to deal with their mental health. And I'm not frightened to admit I have a therapist and, you know, people see me now and they see this energetic, happy person on social media and in front of a camera. Um, but there's also this other life that maybe people don't see that I should share more of um, that I need to manage daily and I need to manage weekly. So therapy for me has been immense. Um, the rehab in Ingolstadt was huge. Um, obviously, not long after I ended my career in Portland, um, still going through some depression, but still managing to be able to manage it better than I did do when I was in Salt Lake. And I made a lot of mistakes, you know, at that time, but it wasn't me. And I know that I needed to deal with it better. And thankfully now with the help of therapy and my wife who stood by me all those years, Nicole, just an amazing human being, such a positive person and influence. Jason Christ, still good friends today. Uh, Garth Lagerway, great friends. Those people were there. And the people I've come in contact with across this journey into media has been tremendous. But if uh, anybody out there is uh, wondering what therapy is like, 
my opinion is that therapy should be made free to people and people should be going to therapy. Even if you don't think you need it, it's great for your life and it can really help. I see a therapist as well and have no issues saying that. Uh, it's been very helpful to me. So I appreciate you sharing your story. Why, what do you think pro sports teams can do more than they're currently doing for athletes that could use therapy, mental health help? I think, I think every team should have a therapist my personal opinion. And I would imagine now most of the major teams at the top level do have a therapist or some kind of mental health coach. Um, there is an issue, obviously, in Major League Soccer with funding, I believe, as far as making a space for that. Um, mm. I'm sure MLS can do more. I'm confident they can do more. I think the Players Union can do more in that regard. Um, and we must not forget the times that people have gone through this year. We've gone through a pandemic, which in, in many ways has been probably the worst for most people they've ever experienced in their life. We have gone through um, a lot of injustice in life over the last 12 years towards um, African-American uh, culture. And it's been very difficult for many people to deal with that. And I think um, players in particular Athletes in particular, male or female, have um, an issue in their life. They need to be able to go somewhere and speak about that openly without repercussion. There was a, a, a former player who came after me at St. Pauli. Um, his name was Andreas Biermann. And he replaced me, left back for left back. And um, he had a history of depression. And he openly talked about his depression. But he was criticized for it, Grant. And at one point, he left St. Pauli because he had tried to commit suicide before, but he had left St. Pauli to try to sort his own head out, but wasn't making any ground up. And no team would make any contract for him or pick him up because they knew of his mental health issues. And it got so bad that eventually he did commit suicide and, and left behind a family and a couple of kids. But he was crying for help and nobody stepped up and helped him. There wasn't a club or a federation, or a foundation, or anyone who stepped up to help this individual. And that's where I fear we're going to see more if we don't make this something very important to our pro teams. You have to look after your players. It's evident in NBA recently with Kyrie Irving, who talked about it openly. Um, there's multiple athletes in soccer, male and female, who openly talk about their mental health. Collegiate athletes, what they're going through. It's something that I think that needs to be a regular occurrence where even if people don't think they need therapy, it's there and available whenever you do. Yeah. Uh, obviously, just this past week, we lost Des McAleen and goalkeeper's coach for uh, the New York Red Bulls for many years, worked with a lot of terrific goalkeepers, uh, had been recently with the Columbia national team when Carlos Caros was coaching them. And he had talking, he had spoken publicly about his struggles with depression and, and, and he took his own life last week. And, and, and so I, I think about this and, you know, we could, we could talk for a long time about Des. I, it's, it's tragic. And I, I just hope that people who are listening, who are dealing with issues, um, you know, feel comfortable seeing someone see, seeking help. Um, yep. Well said. There's, there's no easy seg here to, to go into a different topic, my friend, but I'm going to try. Um, <laughs> so you moved to, to New York City 
you've been in these fascinating cities, these great cities, New York, LA, Miami. Um, and now one of your jobs is with CBS. Um, and they've gone all in on soccer over the past year in a way that few people would have expected. They, they just bought more soccer rights, including this summer's CONCACAF Nations League finals, the U.S. men's national team away World Cup qualifiers, U.S. women's national team World Cup qualifying tournament. What's your sense of what CBS is up to here with soccer? Because so far, it seems like they're, they're doing a pretty good job. When I made the decision to leave Fox, I made the decision to follow my dream and come to the East Coast because of Yes Network. I wanted to be an environment where everybody around me thought the same, wanted the same, cared about the product. I didn't get that as much at Fox. And that's one of the reasons why I was looking forward to leaving. Yes Network, I was getting it for six years, you know, for six years already. So I knew there was the opportunity of my own show, but I was doing so well with NYCFC. I started doing some uh, some Yankees pregame stuff, which is crazy to even talk about. Soccer player doing baseball. But I wanted to be in a culture where the product was really important. The people trying to get to the end product were good people and all thought and acted the same way and actually cared. And that's what I got at Yes Network. I didn't really plan on working for CBS. And I got the call while I'd already sold my house in L.A., and was heading to New York anyway. I was heading to the East Coast anyway because I was coming for Yes Network. So when I got the call from CBS, immediately my boss uh, just blew me away. The way he cared about the conversation. And of course, there's amazing product that they've put together for Champions League at that time, which was a, a smaller, quick, rushed out product because of what happened with the previous rights owner and CBS had taken it on. So now you've got CBS All Access and you've got CBS Sports HQ. And I got the call from my boss and it was doing work with CBS Sports HQ. Would I be interested in it? And I said, most importantly, like, what is the product? Like, what, what do you see the product being? That was the question I asked him. And every answer checked all of my boxes. And I could, see her, I could hear that he cared. He wanted it to be something really special. And he asked a lot of questions about me. And that was most important to me, that if they're going to build a culture to make an amazing product, you got to have the right people there. And the right people have to all buy in and not just care about themselves or their own career or you know what they're doing or making money. It's about actually the product. So when I accepted it, he was obviously very happy and I was extremely happy because my uh, studio for CBS Sports HQ is in the same studio as my Yes Network studio. Oh, nice. It couldn't have got any better. So it was a dream come true. So I came over, did my um, two-week mandatory staying away from everybody and living my uh, Brooklyn life in an apartment uh, with four walls. And then all of a sudden when I was unleashed from protocol and um, I could get out in the, in the world, we were starting with Champions League and I was back in the chair with Champions League. Poppy Miller was alongside me and um, we had a tremendous team with Demarcus Beasley and Jimmy Conrad. And obviously we had Luis Garcia coming on board and we have our reporters all across the, the world. Um, and then Christina in, um, in California coming on talking about officiating. And I knew they were putting together an amazing product. And immediately when Shaw Brown was in charge 
I'd worked with Shaw before, um, but not as close, but I knew his passion for um, the game. I knew his passion for broadcasting. And I knew that I was going to take a minute to get used to Shaw and his tempo and, and the way he works because he's one of a kind, right? This guy's different from, he's differently tuned from most producers, but he cares about the product and he cares about people. And once you get to know him, you really see that love and passion come through. And we hit it off straight away. And I loved every minute of it. So it's been really amazing to watch the success of that small Champions League finish back in August and September. And then watching Kate Abdo do her thing in London with the crew over there. Phenomenal. What a job they did over there. And Kate's just the best. She's an amazing presenter and, and person. And she's so successful because she is the best at what she does. And I don't feel like that was valued enough at my previous employer at Fox. So to see her go and do that at CBS where I was a part of it, even though on a different show, made me immensely proud. And the people we work with, Grant, are so important to me because they care. They give a shit. And that's important to me, making sure that they put themselves into a position that people who are tuning in enjoy what they're watching. Because for so many years, the criticism has been there and clearly evident. The product's not good enough. You're not giving the people what they want. And CBS said, let's give the people what they want. And they've gone the extra mile to make that happen. And it's, it's been a real honor to be a part of that. Keep doing what you're doing because I'm enjoying those broadcasts. Um, you know, the, the challenge sometimes for me has been like to be able to watch your show on HQ and the, the all access show from London. But like, I, I actually, I, I watch both and like the quality of guests you guys get on the HQ shows is a list. Um, and, and obviously listeners of this podcast, we had Kate Abdo on a little while back. Uh, my previous podcast, we had Shaw Brown once and he's just uh, the best producer I've ever worked with in terms of quality, in terms of being demanding of us as talent, but also of himself. And uh, yeah, you got a good thing going there. Um, yeah, it's different though, Grant, right? Because you have televisions changing, digital's changing. You know, we're on a digital platform for HQ and um, sports wagering's coming into play in a very big way. And it's something I'm passionate about. I love to be able to pick a winner and to be able to have an opinion on that type of show where we have a two-hour pregame show for mm -hmm. free on a digital platform and then a two-hour postgame show where we can really show her our quality as analysts it's just awesome. It's just awesome. And I, I love the fact that there's a freedom to be myself and the talent has freedom to be themselves. And they've handpicked all of these people to be a part of the show. And it's really, it's really fabulous to watch on, on this side of the pond and also what they're doing over in London with the, the show for uh, Kate Abdo's show. Just a couple more questions here with Ian Joy. Really appreciate you taking this much time. Uh, I want to ask you a question about NYCFC. You know this team well. You broadcast them. How do you feel about NYCFC heading into the season? Well, what a question. Um, I don't know what to feel right now because there's not a lot of noise about NYCFC. But what I do know from within the club and who I've been speaking to from the very top is that they're very happy with the position they're in. They're very happy with the team that they've got. They're happy with the trades that they've made, which has surprised many people. Um, but when they're happy, you have to trust them. And that's what I do. You know, I've been a part of NYCFC from the beginning. And there's no doubt that a stadium for this club is needed. There's no doubt that 
The stadium is not far away. When that will be, I don't know. An announcement would be nice, but I don't think they're far away from that. And when that does happen, people will really start to feel the love from the club. We must not forget that we're in New York City and it's very difficult to get and make a stadium happen in New York City. So when it does come to fruition, I think people will be very, very proud of what the club is and what they're about to become. And that's when the club can really grow. You have your own stadium. The fans have a place to ha- to call home. And then we can start to really build on the team. But what they have done with the team from where we started with David Villa and Andrea Pirlo and uh, Frank Lampard and then all the sprinkles of talent beneath them was, was cool to watch. It was different. Um, New York is a place to obviously you want to see the stars. And that's what they did. That was their philosophy and idea at the, at the beginning. Now it's changed a little bit. Now they're starting to recognize that there are some talented players in South America and in Europe that can make a big difference that don't necessarily have to be a big name and command a huge salary. And I love that idea because I was a part of that in my whole career at St. Pauli and at Real Salt Lake, pretty much every player was on the same salary and we're all equally talented. And I love the fact that NYCFC have um, some experience in their squad, but they've, they've focused a lot on the youth and the academy and giving them a chance. And, that really is great to see for me because in the long run, NYCFC are going to benefit from that. But this season to answer your question is difficult to predict because I have no idea where all the other MLS teams are going to stand. There's been many changes with players, with coaches, um, and you can guarantee that a big club like LA Galaxy, who looked woeful last year, will not be that bad this year. So who knows what the Eastern Conference is going to look like, but I can guarantee that NYCFC will be there or thereabouts when it comes to the playoffs next year. How good they are in those playoffs will be determined by the signings they make and how good Ronnie Dyla is in his second season in charge of the club, which I'm excited to see. I'm going through some MLS withdrawal. Usually the season starts right around now, and it's going to start later this year for a number of reasons. And yeah, some of my weekend, my weekend nights, I, 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 Mexican League's fine, man, but I miss MLS. <laughs> um, I want to wrap up with just a question about We have a lot of listeners who are students who want to do what you're doing. And I'm wondering if you have any particular advice for young people who want to get into doing what you do. Fabulous question and really an important question. I mean, the amount of people that I'm sure reach out to you and the amount of people that reach out to me is unbelievable. People want to get into this industry. And I will tell you this, and you know this, but the listeners maybe not know this, that when you're in... It's no better feeling. You are a part of something really special. This, the sports media in this country is just exceptional. Great people and great stories and talent. It's just amazing when you're in. But trying to get in is the hardest thing. Trying to get an opportunity, especially after what we've just gone through with so many people getting released from positions, it's even more difficult now for the next generation to get their chance. But It's really important to focus on your passion. And I've communicated this with a few people who've reached out to me recently that male or female, no matter what you are, uh, what race you are, um, what your beliefs are, this is a real unique time in sports media where there is an opportunity, no matter who you are, or there is absolutely no discrimination as far as I'm concerned. There's, there's a better opportunity for people who maybe thought that this wasn't going to be a future for them because they saw always a white man in a position. Now it's different. 
girls are getting a chance, which is amazing. I got two daughters. I want them to believe they can do what I do one day, right? We are starting to see um, a great equal opportunity for African-Americans as well, being in prime position. And no matter what culture you come from, what you sound like, now is a great time to get into this industry because we are starting to see equal opportunity in sports media like I have never seen before. And I'm really proud to be a part of that. Now, the culture of media was previously and probably still is one of when you get a job, people protect it. And there's a fear factor of the next talented youngster coming up. I'm going to protect my position and push people aside. Can't be like that, Grant. We have to be, and we all have a responsibility of the product and making sure that the next generation are even better than we are. So to get that, they have to get experience and learn from us in the right way. We have to share our experiences. So whenever people reach out to me and one recently asked, how do you prepare for a game? I sent them all my preparation. Hmm. I sent them exactly what I do for a game. Here's what I do. But what I would do is reach out to multiple talent and ask, no matter what role it is, if it's a host or an analyst or a journalist or a writer or whatever it is, a reporter, ask them how they prepare because everybody prepares different. And you should just learn from five or six different people and make your own product because that's what's going to make you uniquely different from everybody else. Now that there is a a more equal opportunity, now it's about the best talent getting the opportunity. And I think that's really important for the next generation who are coming through. And there will be a lot of closed doors and a lot of people saying, no, you're not going to get your chance here. But eventually you will. And what you do with that chance and the first impression you make is so, so important. So preparation is key more than anything else in this industry. Ian Joy can be seen on CBS Sports HQ, the Yes Network broadcast of NYCFC, and hosting a new show on Yes called Joy to the World. Ian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's great to see you and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Ian Joy as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.